Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. If you guys are going to clap, do it right. See why I told John you're not good at it? Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, John chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, last week... Don't laugh at me already. Last week I couldn't read my Bible, so I've had to take the unfortunate step of getting readers. Taylor told me they're old man glasses, so they were six bucks at the dollar store. Uh, When she said they were old man glasses, I was like, great, maybe people will think I'm a little older now. Uh, I'm tired of getting asked if I'm 13 years old when I get up here, so... It's all right. You can laugh at me. John chapter two. Uh, This is one of the the most strange stories uh, in the Bible. And it's something that has really kind of messed with me for a really long time. And uh, as we come into this Easter season, I wanted to look at John chapter two as a whole for the next about three weeks. Take a break from our uh, Ezra Nehemiah series. So I think there's a lot to learn about who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish as we lead our way up into Easter in this whole chapter. And as we come into chapter 2, this is actually Jesus' very first miracle. It's the very first thing that he does. It's how he kicks off his ministry. And I always thought it was just a little bit strange because it looks like, I mean, just as you heard it read, that uh, Jesus is almost forced into doing this miracle. It's really strange, isn't it? That Jesus' mother says, hey, they don't have any wine. And I always took that as Jesus' mom uh, doing what moms do and saying, hey, you need to do something about this. You know, there's no wine here, and you need to do this. And Jesus is like, Mom, I'm a 30-year-old man, and I'm God, so don't tell me what to do. And then he does it, you know? It's like, if you're married, I feel like you understand this, you know? Like, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I would not suggest men, you know, saying, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? And you're like, that's, some of you guys are like, that's my new life verse, you know? You know, I wouldn't suggest doing what Jesus does here. Uh, But that seems to be kind of the idea behind this text when we look at it initially. And that's what I always thought it kind of was saying, you know, that uh, Jesus is is honestly, as we look at it, kind of rude to his mama. But as I studied this week, I think that it's it's actually something a little bit different. So we're going to we're going to look at that today. And what I want to do today is just show us uh, and hopefully accomplish what the end of this story says. So I think one of the keys to understanding this text is John chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, mainly number 11, verse 11, rather. says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. The key there would obviously be that it's the first of his signs, so it's got great importance. He's starting a three-year ministry. Jesus was 33 years old when he died on the cross, and he actually didn't start his ministry until he was 30. So he's kicking off this three-year ministry with this first sign. And uh, so that means it's obviously really important, and it's almost a parable uh, for his whole ministry. And then it says this, he revealed his glory. This means he's laying bare an aspect of who he is to his disciples so that they might believe in it. And I believe that's what he's doing for us today. My prayer and my hope all week is that you would see an answer to these four questions that I think we see in the text. Number one is, who is Jesus? I think the text also reveals then how we should respond to that. And then number three is, what was the purpose of his ministry? And then number four is, what is the result of his ministry? 
So I'm going to pray and then we're going to look at these four questions in this text. Who is Jesus? How should we respond? What was the purpose of his ministry? And what is the result of his ministry? Father, as we come to this text, I need your help. Jesus, I am a sinful man. I am slow to understand the things you want me to understand. And Lord, even when I think I begin to understand them, I have a hard time explaining them in such a way that your people can hear. Lord, I I am helpless without you. So God, I pray that your spirit would work in all of our hearts. Your spirit would work in me as I speak. Help me to say true things. Help me to forget the things that are not true. And Lord, help my listeners as they do the hard work of listening to your word. I pray that you'd give them what they need to pay attention and to hear those things that are true. And I pray that those things that are untrue would be blown away like chaff in the wind. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. Amen. Verses 1 through 4 are the the kind of strange verses, and so we're going to spend the majority of our time there because I think they're really important for us to understand this whole text. So John chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were inviting to the wedding as well. It's kind of cool. Jesus was invited to the party. You know, some of the religious people didn't like Jesus for this. Like, hey, you get to go to the parties, but nobody invites us to their parties. But here's Jesus, the Messiah, and he's being invited to a wedding. Verse 3, when the wine ran out. Everybody said, "Uh uh-oh, the wine ran out. You can't have a party without wine. Especially in the Jewish culture, for the wine to run out at the wedding was a humiliation, a tragedy. Uh, The rabbis had a motto during Jesus' time, and it was something like this. Uh, no wine means no joy. No wine, no joy. Joy was represented by wine. And so it's a very bad omen for wine to run out at the wedding. It's saying something about what is to come in this marriage. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. And, and I'm reading that verse four from the old CSB translation because I think they got it right uh, on that one. So your Bible might say something a little bit different, but it says, what does that have to do with you and me? Woman, Jesus asked my hour has not yet come. So I want to look at four different aspects of what we just looked at there. And I think it'll make a lot more sense to us. uh, And then it'll ultimately show us who Jesus is and why it matters to us and why we are really celebrating as we come into Easter season. Why is it a good thing that Jesus came and did the things that he did? So number one is, I don't believe that Mary is making a request. There's nothing in this text that would show me that Mary is trying to ask Jesus a question. I think we assume Mary is asking a question because of Jesus' response to her. But she is simply saying, they don't have any wine. She's making a statement. Just like you would if you were at a wedding and something incredibly embarrassing happened to the bride or to the groom. You know, it'd be like if we were at somebody else's wedding and we were sitting there and you noticed the groom was a total slob and he got something all over his tux and all over his white shirt. You know, you'd go, oh my gosh, look at him. You know, that's so humiliating. How embarrassing. And I think that's what Mary is doing. She's pointing out something that she sees as they probably all did at the wedding when they noticed this. Uh, Hopefully that'll make more sense as we keep going. Number two is uh, I want to soften what Jesus says here when he says woman, when he says woman, you know, that's probably the the harsh part. It's like, Jesus, you could tell her you don't want to do the miracle, but did you, did you have to throw in a woman? Like, can you not call her mom or something? And I really, I think that this is just a hard time translating this word into English because we really don't have a good word for it. And I don't know why they chose woman because that sounds really, really harsh. But I know Jesus is not being harsh here, and here's how I know this. 
Because if you go to the end of the Gospel of John, we see Jesus use this same word for his mother in really one of the most beautiful and sweet moments we have in all of the Gospels. Jesus is on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And in this moment, he looks over and he sees his mama. And his mama is standing there with John, the writer of this book that we're reading from. And Jesus calls out to her and he, he says, Mother, this is your son. And then he says, John, this is your mother. In other words, he's taking care of his mom. He's saying, this is how I'm going to provide for you in my death. He's thinking of his mom while on the cross. And look at the words that he uses. John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, that'd be Mary, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, that'd be John, standing there, he said to his mother, and look at the word he uses, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So we see here that woman is, Jesus is is not saying something harsh here. He's actually saying something sweet. I think that's the tone we need to have. Maybe we could look at it as like ma'am or dear lady. Uh, There's just really not a word for what Jesus is doing here, but it's certainly not harsh. Uh, And then number three, I think key to understanding this kind of weird text is verse four, which is uh, it says in the new CSB translation. And it's different in all the different translations because translating the Bible is really hard sometimes. And uh, this is one of those texts that translators have a really hard time with. But in the new CSB, it, it is it sounds very harsh. It says, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? But if you look at it literally, but what it literally says, and this is why it's kind of hard to translate because it doesn't give us much context. What it literally says is, What to me and to you? What to me and what to you? And we tend to take that as he's saying, what what is your concern versus my concern? But I I think it's it's better translated, Jesus saying, as she's looking at this guy and saying, look at this humiliation of the groom who does not have enough wine. I think Jesus is looking at her and he's saying, Mom, do you know what this has to do with us? That this isn't just about them, but there's something bigger going on here. In other words, it's not just their wedding. it's, It's my wedding in a sense. It's not just the small town wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's actually the beginning of my ministry that is going to radically change the entire world. And so it's not just their problem. It's our problem that there's not wine here. And I think as he says this to Mary, the reason why he softens it is because Mary probably knows what this is going to mean. See, you got to realize that Mary would not have expected Jesus to do a miracle because he hadn't done any up to this point. For the first 30 years of Jesus' life, you'd walk by him on the street and you would have never thought he was the son of God. He was a normal guy, blue-collar worker. He was a builder of some sort. And for 30 years, he just did what you and I do. He just lived life. He just lived his life with perfect righteousness in a way that you and I cannot. But here, Jesus is starting something supernatural. His divinity is starting to come out. His glory is starting to be revealed. And for everybody, that's really good news. But for Mary, let's not forget she's still the mother of Jesus. And we all know how Jesus' mission is going to end. It's not going to be easy. In fact, Mary probably thought back to what Simeon said in Luke chapter 2 when they took Jesus to dedicate him at the temple. When Jesus is dedicated as a child, this old man Simeon begins to prophesy over Jesus. And it says that his parents, Mary and Joseph, and by this point in time we believe Joseph, Joseph has passed away. And that's why Jesus is taking really kind of the leadership of his family. But Simeon says these things, and Mary and Joseph are amazed, it says. And then Simeon says this. This is Luke uh, chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. It says, Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined 
to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. Look at this, verse 35. And a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I think Jesus is saying, Mom, it's beginning now. Mary had probably wondered when this day was going to come, and it's here. It's now that Jesus is kicking this ministry off. The fourth thing is what he says there at the end. This is really kind of strange. There at the end, Jesus says, it's, it's not my hour. My hour is not here yet. And you kind of think, well, what in the world does that have to do with wine? And again, I used to think that that was saying that Jesus was like, it's not my hour to start my ministry. It's not my hour to do miracles. But it can't be that because then he just does the miracle. You know, it's not like Jesus is like, oh, okay, I guess I'll do the miracle just for you, mom. No, he says, it's not my hour. What in the world does that have to do with wine? And why does he after that make wine? Well, I think we have to realize that when Jesus says it's not my hour or refers to it not being his hour, he's always talking about not the beginning of his ministry, but the end of his ministry. I'll give you just a sampling of it in John's gospel, John 730. So they were seeking to arrest him, him being Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. One more. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled? This is Jesus speaking. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus is talking about his death. And this gives us a huge insight into why wine would be made. In fact, to find out, we actually have to go to another gospel. The gospel writer, Matthew, tells us this and Mark as well. But in the gospel of Matthew and Mark, we see that John uh, the Baptist's disciple, not the same John who wrote this book, but John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and they're a little upset because they have to fast. And, uh, and they come to Jesus' disciples and they're like, hey, you guys, they never fast. In fact, you guys are out partying all the time. Jesus and his disciples, disciples were called drunkards and gluttons. You don't get that kind of reputation if you're not going to some parties and eating some good food. And so they come to them and, and they ask this question. It says... Then John's disciples came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Look at Jesus' response. It gives us a huge insight into what he's saying in this text. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. In other words, Jesus is telling us who he is. He is the groom. He is the groom who has come to save his bride, the church, his people. The groom has arrived, and while the groom is here, we cannot be sad. There's no room for sadness. There cannot be no wine, because there should be wine overflowing. This should be a place of total joy, because the groom is here. Now, this is a huge concept that runs throughout the entire Bible, and I think we have a really hard time understanding it, especially those of us who are men, because it's, it's kind of weird to think of ourselves as the bride of Christ. But this is a huge point throughout the Bible. And it's something that should make you guys smile a little bit more. I've got glasses now. I could see you. <laughs> a uh, Catholic scholar named Brent Petre says this about what this means for us. It says, from a biblical perspective, salvation is ultimately about union with God. The God of Israel is not a distant deity or an impersonal power, but the bridegroom who wants his bride to know him intimately. In a spiritual marriage that is not only faithful and fruitful, but everlasting. 
And that should excite us. And that's why John Piper says this when he is talking about Matthew uh, chapter uh, 9. He says, you just can't fast in this situation. It is too happy and too spectacularly exhilarating. Fasting is for times of yearning and aching and longing. But the bridegroom of Israel is here. After a thousand years of dreaming and longing and hoping and waiting, he is here. The absence of fasting in the band of disciples was a witness to the presence of God in their midst. So we cannot be out of line, friends, because he is here. The moment we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3, when God said he would raise up somebody to crush that snake, that moment is here. The answer to our first question is, who is Jesus? He is the groom who has come for his bride, the people of God, us, the church. Now, as we move into the next question, the question is, how do we respond to that? And I'll tell you, we don't respond the way you guys are right now. (laughs) Now, I did have about a half a pot of coffee and no breakfast, so I've got a lot of excitement. I realize that, but this is a big deal. Verse five gives us the proper response, and it's actually the words of Jesus's mother. This is this is what you do when you see Jesus for who he is. Are you ready for it? You do whatever he tells you. That's what his mother told the servants. Do whatever he tells you. Now, this is really close to actually what Jesus' heavenly father will say about him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes his disciples up on this mountain. God's glory overcomes them. Peter says some silly stuff like he always does. And then God speaks and he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And he says this. He says, listen to him. Jesus' father says, listen to him. Jesus' mother says, do whatever he says. And friends, this is how we respond to the gospel. If, if, if I want to know if you have listened to Jesus, you've seen Jesus rather for who he is. You understand Jesus for who he is. I, I don't ask you if you've responded by walking down an aisle to an altar, although that may be how it started, but that's not the fruit. You know, I don't ask you if you raised your hand in church when a pastor made you feel bad sometime. You might have done that, but that's not the fruit. I don't ask you if you prayed a certain prayer in a certain way. You might have started that way, but that's not the fruit. You know how I know if you know who Jesus is? You want to do whatever He tells you to do. You say, I, I look at Him for answers in all of my life. In fact, John plays this out a little bit further in his letter that he writes to the churches called 1 John. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4 says, The one who says, I have come to know Him and yet doesn't keep His commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. Chapter 1, verse 5 says, But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. 1 John 2, 23. Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him, and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. And one more. This is how this is first John chapter five, verse two through four. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God, that we are God's children, rather, and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is to keep his commands and his commandments are not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that he has conquered the world. Our faith, friends, if you understand who Jesus is then you'll listen to Mary and you'll do what he says to do. Doesn't this really simplify our evangelism as well? In fact, this is what Jesus tells us to do as the church. Our whole job as the church is to tell everybody who Jesus is. And then when they see who Jesus is, you know what we tell them to do? We say, do what he says. 
That takes a lot of weight off of me. You know, I don't, I don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to come to me for advice. What I want you to do is come to Jesus, see how beautiful He is, and then just do what He says to do. Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus is, is going uh, up to the right hand of the Father, right before His ascension. These are the last words He gives His disciples, and He tells us what to do. It says, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then here's what we do. Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you to the end of the age. There's Jesus. Do what he says to do. That's the proper response to understanding that he is the groom. Now, the next question, the third question is, what did he come to do? Why did Jesus do it this way? What is he trying to accomplish in these three years in this ministry? And one of the answers, a partial answer to that, we could play it out throughout the gospel and get some more answers possibly, but he certainly at least did this. He came to get his bride ready. He came to get his bride ready for the wedding. Uh, Look at verse 6. It's really interesting where Jesus made the wine. Verse 6, it says, Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. This is baptistry water that he is using. The purification process was to get in this water, to clean yourself on the outside as a representation of the the ceremonial cleanness you had before God. Can you imagine uh, if you came into a church building like this and instead of filling the, the baptistry up with water, we filled it up with wine? A Baptist grandma somewhere would have a heart attack. And yet here's what Jesus does. Why is he doing this? Well, he's showing us what he's come to do. He's come to purify his people. You don't purify yourself through outside washing of water. That'll just get the dirt off of you. He came to purify you from the inside out to make you a dazzling beauty. You know, and, and we understand this even in our wedding culture, how, how you know, the most exciting part of a wedding. And, and as a pastor, I get the kind of rare opportunity, I guess, unless you're a Hollywood star. But even then, they only get married about six or nine times. Uh, <laughs> I get the rare opportunity of standing in this position right beside the groom as a bride comes in. And it's the most exciting time. You know, it it doesn't matter. And I've never seen a bride that doesn't look beautiful. They always look beautiful. It doesn't matter what the reality is. In that moment, they look gorgeous. And what is the most exciting part of the wedding? It's not the finish. You know, it's not at the end of it when, they, when I say you guys are now one. No, it's, it's when the bride is coming. Everybody turns back and they're looking and we're awaiting to see what she looks like. And we're looking at the groom to see what his response to her might be. Well, this is what Jesus has come to do for us, friends. He's come to make us beautiful. He's come to adorn us. Uh, I follow this kind of news people that send me a an email every day of the news of the day. And sometimes they put on there a a flashback from an old article that they had. And an old article from 1996 showed up. uh, And it was about a guy named Dennis Rodman, who was uh, a basketball player in the the Michael Jordan era for the Chicago Bulls. And uh, Dennis Rodman is not going to ever win most handsome man of the year by any stretch of the imagination. And this article was talking about, uh, I guess at some point in time, I was one years old, so some of you probably know this a lot better than I do, but he showed up to a book signing wearing a wedding dress. And the whole point of the article was, even Dennis Rodman looks beautiful in a wedding dress. (laughs) And friends, I think we would all agree that some brides need more work than other brides. (laughs) 
Now, you laugh, but I'm serious. You know, G- so my wife, Taylor, is beautiful. I don't know why she spent a week getting ready for the wedding. You know, she's got her nails done, her hair done. And then uh, it took me like 15 minutes to get ready for the wedding. Uh, I was supposed to get there an hour early. And I just sat there on my phone for 45 minutes waiting on pictures. Uh, but, but she went all out to get beautiful for this wedding. Now, she probably didn't have to do all of that to look as beautiful as she did. Dennis Rodman had to do a lot of work. <laughs> and what you need to understand about the church, about us, is we are less like Taylor and a lot more like Dennis Rodman. We do not have beautiful garments on our own. In fact, Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. On our own, as we stand before the Lord, this is how we look. All of us have become like something unclean. And all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities carry us away like the wind. But the good news is, is that Jesus' mission was to get his bride ready. I love what Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27 says. Paul is talking in the context of husbands and wives, but he tells us something really important about Jesus. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her and to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. And when we think word there, we tend to think of the Bible. And that's true. But it's, it's more than that as well. It is the gospel. It is the whole of what Jesus has done. The whole of the narrative of God. By the washing of the word. He did this, why? To present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or anything like that. But holy and blameless. So that at our wedding, everybody would be amazed at how beautiful the church is. Because of how Christ has adorned us. Now you say, how does he do that? Well, Revelation... Uh, Chapter 7, verse 14 tells us, They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We are made pure and clean through the blood of the Lamb. It's one of those weird church things that we say, but we never actually really explain what it means. We say, covered in the blood. I'm covered in the blood. You know what I mean, brother? And it's like, no, I don't. It sounds really creepy. What are you talking about? Well, in the Bible, it's it's very... uh, The New Testament writers often use this kind of idea that we put on Christ... We put him on like a coat. I put on his righteousness, so to speak. Uh, and this is what he came to do. He came to live the life I could not live, to die the death I deserve to die. So as Paul says, there's this great exchange of sorts where I take his righteousness and he takes my sin. He dies in my place. He is nailed to the tree so that I might live forever in perfect union with him. I heard a great example of this actually from a wedding uh, it was a, a story about a groom who had, like I said earlier, spilt coffee all over his shirt about 10 minutes before the wedding was supposed to start. And I really sympathize with that guy because that would have been me. They wouldn't let me touch anything that had any color to it before my wedding because I always spill stuff. I always think I don't have to get my shirt dry cleaned. But about 15 minutes after I get home, I'm like, oh, man, not again. Uh, and this is what happened to this groom and his best friend, his best man, who's also his best friend, uh, looked at him. And right before they went out to the wedding, he said, here. Trade me shirts. And so he took off his pure, clean shirt and he gave it to the groom and he put on the groom's nasty shirt. So as they stood up there for the wedding, guess who looked like a fool? It wasn't the groom. It was the best man. This is what Jesus did for us, friends. He took on my sin and he was cursed so that I might be chosen. He was forsaken so that I might be known by the Lord. This is why Jesus came to get his bride ready. Now, the last question I want to look at is what is the result of his ministry? What can we expect to happen because of this ministry? 
Look with me at verses 7 through 10. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after the people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Now, friends, this is, uh, these things I'm about to say are the things that ought to make you worship. When we stand up and we sing that last song, these are the things that you ought to be really excited about. Because if I can sum up the three things that his ministry accomplishes, according to this text, I would say this, that he came to give us everlasting joy. And let me show you three things that I think play out throughout the Gospel of John. Number one, do you see where it says, so they filled them to the brim. This is what Jesus does with our joy. John 10, 10. The thief comes to steal, but I have come to give them life and life abundantly. Life to the full. Jesus fills it up to the brim. In fact, we know, uh, I don't know how they know this, but they work it out and they think that Jesus made about 120 gallons of wine. This is huge. And this is what Jesus does. He blesses us over and abundant what we deserve. He fills it to the brim. Life abundant. The second thing is we get undeserved favor. Did you notice who the head waiter calls when he tastes this wine? And he's like, Woo-hoo, this is not boxed wine. This is the good stuff. It says he called the groom. But he did not call Jesus the groom. He called the groom. And the groom gets credit for this good wine when the groom had no idea that about 10 minutes ago it was bath water. This is what Jesus does for us. Because of what he did, I get favor. The New Testament says insane things. I mean, like, really, it's mind-blowing. Like, Paul just kind of throws stuff in there, and I'm like, Paul, please explain what you mean, because that's amazing. There's a, there's a part where he says that I'm going to judge angels. I'm going to sit on a throne by Jesus and judge angels? What does that mean? I have no idea. And yet, because I'm a co-heir with Christ, because of the favor He earned for me, I get to also go with him and receive the benefits of what only is rightfully his. We get so much undeserved favor. And then lastly, his ministry gives us hope. We have hope for what is to come. This world is not all that there is. There is a world to come, a renewed world in which Jesus will reign as king. And in that moment, we will all say he has saved the best wine for now. You know, and in this world, we do get sips of joy. And Jesus gives us cups of wine, so to speak. There are times in which we kind of get a glimpse or a flavor of what is to come. When you eat a good steak, I'm sorry, vegetarians. When you eat a good steak, you're getting a little glimpse of the way that God loves us. You're getting a little glimpse of what is to come. When we drink good wine, I'm sorry, Baptist. We get a little glimpse of what Jesus has for us. When you fall in love, you get a little glimpse. When we come to a place like this and we have those rare special moments where it feels like heaven's a little closer to earth than normal, we get a glimpse of what God wants for us. But friends, right now we live in a world that is surrounded by suffering. So these are just sips of the joy that God has for us because there's still cancer. There's still sickness. There's still death in this world. Jesus never says that we will not have problems. In fact, he promises that we will. But he also promises that we will have these sips of joy in life. But ultimately, they are just foreshadowing that which is to come. I love what uh, Charles Spurgeon says. He's my favorite dead pastor. You guys should all have a favorite dead pastor. 
And Spurgeon says, in the first moment of our new life, we will be heard saying he has kept the best wine until now. When we begin to see him face to face, when we enter into the closest fellowship with nothing to disturb or to distract us, then shall we say the best wine is kept until now. In the new heavens, in the new earth, friends, there will be no funeral directors because there will be no death. There will be no lawyers because we will have no disputes. There will be no preachers like me because we'll all just go to Jesus and hear what he says to do. Friends, the new heavens and the new earth will be so mind-blowing to us. And the very same God, the very same Jesus who takes water into wine will be the same one who takes our dead bones and he breathes life into them as we arise in a new and renewed body in a new and renewed world which we get to experience all the joy. There will be no more cemeteries as we sang this morning. Those cemeteries will once and for all be turned into the gardens that they were always meant to be. Oh, friends, as a Christian, we have hope now. But friends, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the next one. I look forward to the next one. That's where our joy will be filled to the brim. If that doesn't get you excited, I'm sorry. I did the best I could today. (laughs) Romans chapter 8, 18. Paul sums it up for us. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And John, if you want to go ahead and come up. Uh, The four answers to the four questions today. Who is Jesus? He's the groom. How should we respond? We've got to be like Mary. Just do what He says. What was the purpose of His ministry to get His bride ready? And what is the result of His ministry? Joy unending for His bride. You know, as I thought about it this week, I thought it was kind of strange that Jesus would kick off His ministry at a wedding. But the more I thought about it, the more it made all the sense in the world. Not just for the reasons that I've told you already, but it makes all the sense in the world because the Bible, in in some ways, is actually framed by weddings. The marriage motif runs throughout it. But if you you go back to the first humans, Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 in the garden, what happens? We see a wedding. And it makes perfect sense that here we see in Jesus, as He begins His new ministry, that the only way that He might would want to begin it is where? At a wedding. And ultimately, friends, when God draws our time to an end, the time of the world to an end, Revelation tells us that we will be at another wedding. It'll be a wedding feast. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. This is what I want to close with. says this. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah! Because our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Friends, let these words be a blessing to you today. Blessed, blessed are us who are invited to the feast of the marriage of the Lamb. Father, you are so good. You are so beyond good to us. Jesus, when we are in your presence, there is no time for us to be out of wine. Because where there is no wine, there is no joy. And where you are, there is joy unending. 
Jesus, I pray that you would draw men and women to yourself today. I pray that we would leave here with your glory more revealed to us than when we walked in. And we would leave here more satisfied and more full of joy in you than ever before. And friends, if you would, just take 20 seconds, eyes closed, head bowed. Take about 20 seconds and say, Holy Spirit, what are you, what are you showing me in this text? God, as you bring things to mind through the preaching of your word, I pray that we would have the courage to obey you. Lord, I pray that we would all be like Mary, understanding that we look to you and we simply do whatever you tell us to do. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray and it's in your name that we now sing. Amen. Friends, let's stand and worship. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.